Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Let's uh, open in prayer as we look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray now as we come to more deeply consider your Word that we've heard read and we've uh, been singing, that now you would help us understand it so that we might apply it in our lives. Help us see our Savior there and be reminded of that. Therefore, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So as I mentioned, we're from Lancaster County, and in Lancaster County in October of 2006, you may recall there was a very tragic incident in our county, not far from where we live, about 10 miles. A fellow named Charles Roberts killed five children and injured five more before killing himself in an Amish schoolhouse. These schoolhouses dot the landscape. They're small one-room schoolhouses that go to the eighth grade, and he broke in with the intention of killing certainly it seemed like, and locked himself in. A few people got away, and uh, he ended up killing five children and injuring others before that. What's remarkable about that story, and it made national news, books were written about it, as well as a TV uh, movie, is that beginning that day and through the next few days, those parents who had lost their children to this maniac um, person, murderer, those children... Had, had died and been maimed, the parents and grandparents of those children came to the family of the murderer and said, we forgive you. The striking thing. Can you imagine that? Now, you have children, you have relatives, you have friends, you have loved ones. Could you do that? Could you forgive? They couldn't forgive the murderer because the murderer was dead but they went to the family to convey that forgiveness. They certainly would have conveyed it to the murderer had he been alive. Could you imagine doing that? What a striking thing. Again, it's been heavily publicized over these years. And can you imagine the family of the murderer and how they felt? Because this man had three children and a wife a mother that lives in the area. It's interesting, uh, our church had a little role in that, church, in that uh, incident in that one of the uh, friends of uh, a member of our church knew the family and they were very impoverished and they did not have money for the burial for this murderer. And so when that came to our attention, we got our heads of households together and said, should we provide money for the burial? Now, this is the opportunity we have to help, and uh, we did. So we paid some four or $5,000 to have this infamous person buried. That was, now we would, it would be wonderful to give money to support those in the hospital, wouldn't it? It would be wonderful to give to prevent the death of a child, but we gave to honorably bury this person. You never get to choose sometimes your role in it. But it was indeed a need, and it was a kindness to the family. 
So when we face these huge life situations, what do we do? Well, the text before us, I'll refer to all of Matthew 18, but this is verse 21 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Thus far the reading of God's word. In Matthew 18, there is a number of things going on. I want to go through just a short overview of Matthew 18 and then talk about the nature of conflict and uh, reconciliation. There's an outline for you in the bulletin. And then walk through what I consider to be practical steps to help you work out reconciliation with other people and to come to the place where you can indeed forgive those who have harmed you well. First, just a short review of what's going on in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 begins with this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so what we see here is the basic outline of Matthew 18 is it begins there and in verses 1 to 14 the discussion is who's the greatest, who is great in the kingdom. Then in chapter 18 verses 15 to 20, a passage that many of us know, especially those who've been involved in church for a while, a passage that we usually consider the church discipline passage. It's how are the great to act in the kingdom when sin happens and that is to go through the process of trying to win your brother or else ultimately to excommunication. That's 15 to 20. And then why are the great to act in the kingdom in verses 18, chapter 18, verse 21 to 35? So the end of the passage is that great parable, a verse of which I've read, which is the parable of the steward who, or the, the person who is the unforgiving uh, servant. And that, that is where I want to focus most of my comments. But what, what we can see here, just to make a few points about Matthew 18, again, not trying to do a full exposition, but just draw out a few basic ideas, is the power of reconciliation is realized by the church in the kingdom when we indeed start where the passage starts, and that is recognize the humility that's necessary in interpersonal relationships. Who's great in the kingdom? Those who are humble are great in the kingdom. Why is Jesus illustrating this with a child. Well, we have lots of perceptions of children. We have a number of wonderful children here. And we also know that children that are wonderful are not always wonderful. We also know that children are not always humble, are they? But this has reference especially to the fact that in society, in the first century society, Jewish society, children had no status. They had no power. No one came to them and asked their opinion. No one probably, think about this, mothers, no first century mother asked their child, what would you like to eat? They simply served them what they had. The children had no decisional opportunities in that society. They weren't in any status relationship. No children could sue their parents in that, relationship, in that society. No children could divorce their parents. None of this kind of stuff that in the modern world seems to be uh, very operative. It was classless, uh, social classless 
a complete lack of power that, that Jesus is referring to here when he says children. He means those who have no power and status are not claiming that for anything. That's the, the key idea here. And so when we humble ourselves and recognize that, then indeed we have learned the lesson to start with. But then in the center of the, of the passage, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, he gives us some ways to address the problem when things arise. If your brother sins, now some texts say, if your brother sins against you, it doesn't, that phrase is not in there, that's probably what it means, but it's just basically how do you deal with sin in your community? Jesus has already talked about the community of believers. If you roll back a couple of chapters, he's been giving various stories and teachings about the nature of community, and here is a very significant portion of it, and that is the whole of Matthew 18, and in this place, he lays out the biblical standard for addressing someone's sin. And as you know, uh, beginning in 15, it's worth reading here. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. In private, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, I'm not sure which version you're reading, mine is the New American Standard, what it does is it uses this um, process. It says when, when somebody's quoting from the Old Testament, it puts it in all caps. So this is all caps. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's actually a citation out of Deuteronomy. The point here is that every fact must be determined. What Jesus does is he turns the every fact must be uh, demonstrated kind of over in time. He says, go first yourself, try to determine the facts. Go second with two or three, try to determine the facts. Then go to the church to try to affirm the facts and therefore demonstrate this has happened. And of course, in every stage of this, if he listens, then you have won your brother. The goal being to win back one who is walking in sin. I think we know this in our kinds of churches very well. It's very significant, and I'm going to include that in our process below. But after he gives this instruction... The last section, verses 21 to 35, address this parable of the unforgiving servant. And this is started with Jesus being questioned by Peter, how many times must I forgive? Very famous passage in the Bible. And Jesus says, essentially, there is no limit when he says 77 or 70 times 7. He's simply using an idiom to say, don't count, just keep on forgiving. And so that leads us to a lot of personal questions, does it not? Do we forgive the murderer who just senselessly took our child's life? Do we forgive our spouse who cheated on us? Do we forgive our friend who betrayed us 70 times? How often can we do that? And aren't there any conditions on this? And how do we work this out? Well, that's what I'd like to address to you. So, But just before... I work through those steps with you, which is the main function of this sermon. I want to remind you that conflicts and reconciliation are part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. For example, I remember when I was a young minister, I'd just come out of seminary, and my, because I was around people that believed the Bible and were strong in expositional teaching, the sense that I got was, from, from folks, is that if we just we're a biblical church. If we just followed the Bible, if we just stuck to the word, 
we would have no problems. Maybe you've had that experience, too, of thinking, well, the reason why this church is in trouble is because they don't follow the Bible, but we're going to follow the Bible so that we're not going to have these problems. Or you might have thought of that about, oh, well, once we come to a church that's reformed in theology, obviously everything's going to be great. You know, we have these delusions, is what they are. Because we're all still people. We're all still humans. We didn't leave humanity when we became five-point Calvinists. We didn't leave humanity when we started to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible or something like that. And so I had this, again, delusion that if we just followed the Bible, we would have no problems. But look at the churches in the Bible, for example. Did they have conflicts? And did they have to pursue some reconciliation? Well, in Acts, the very first couple chapters, you have the Hellenistic versus Hebrew widows. You have the division of Paul and Barnabas uh, over Mark. In Romans, let every one of you think not more highly of himself than he ought. Let love be without hypocrisy. As far as possible, be at peace with all men as much as it depends on you. Romans 12, 18. I wonder if the Corinthian church had problems to resolve. Well, they did. We know this. I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. Uh, the Galatian church, clearly they were in conflict Paul exhorts them not to bite and devour one another, 5.15. Ephesian church, showing tolerance for one another. Why do you have to say show tolerance for one another in love? Because that's always a problem. In Thessalonica, see that no one repays another for evil, but see good for one another. And for the churches that Peter is writing to, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. All the way through Hebrews Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. I remember that phrase, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord, or holiness. And I've heard that emphasized a lot. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without, without a transformation in your life so that you bear good fruits, you will not see the Lord. And I think that's what that text says. That's what it means, I think. But notice the first part. It's connected directly with personal reconciliation. Pursue peace with all men. And both two things, both these things, will keep you out of heaven. And we're told that by Jesus earlier in Matthew and in Matthew 18. The, la the, verse, the verse after the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer in our service today. The next verse says, for. It's a strange way to start that, right? You have the Lord's Prayer, this important prayer. For, it's the next word, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. So it's very, very dire, very, very serious. And now I want to address the nature of forgiveness just for a minute or two before we look at the steps. Forgiveness, the Greek word we translated forgive is a me which literally means to not send or not set in motion. It's like that alpha primitive type of term, like atheism, right? The A means no theism. Um, here it is, a femi, do not send, do not set in motion. And so it means in other passages where it's not translated forgive, it has a very interesting meaning. For example, in, in Revelation 2.4, it's the word You've left your first love. That's the word, aphemy. You've forgiven your first love. It doesn't mean forgive in that context. It means something more basic. It means left. You've left your first love. In um, Matthew 5, 4, it's somebody asked for your coat. Give him your, or give him your coat too. Leave it with him. 
Uh, Romans 1.27, men abandoned the natural function. The word abandon is that word. Okay, so you get a sense this, of this. Luke 4.39, when Jesus rebuked the fever from this girl, it left her. So you see a, a more concrete picture of what forgiveness is. It, you let it go. You do not stop it in motion. You leave it behind. So what does it mean in per, personal forgiveness? It means cancel or remit. It means to release on the part of the creditor or offended party any expectation that the debt will be repaid. It means to let go and give up a debt. That's the idea. That's the concrete sense of what forgiveness means in the New Testament on the basis of that word. When we do that, there's a number of aspects to it. Those who study forgiveness at a clinical level, like a clinical psychological level, talk about decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness. Decisional forgiveness occurs when a person decides to act without malice or to act in such a way to treat the offender as a valued person and forswear vengeance. In other words, it's a decision. Can you decide to forgive the person who murdered your child? Yes, you can decide it. It is within your human capacity to make that decision. Does that mean that your feelings will all correspond to that action? No, it does not. So you have to distinguish between the action of the will to forgive, which is what the New Testament is talking about when it says forgive the debt. And the illustration is this story where it's really about money, right? If you say you don't have to pay it back, you might not feel good about that. But if you don't have to pay it back, that's forgiveness. That's the decisional forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not full and complete without the emotional forgiveness, but that does not come easy. And so healing relationships begins here with making clear that we can forgive as a decision. Emotional forgiveness is to be the emotional replacement of negative, unforgiving emotions with positive, other-oriented emotions, empathy, sympathy, compassion, and even love toward the offender. The bottom foundation for this for us in Christ is healing relationships begins with applying the forgiven status that you possess in Christ from your own sins to every other person in your life, and thus addressing them from gospel grace and addressing personal conflicts in this. This, again, we read about in, say, Ephesians 4.32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the basis of it in, in Christianity is not, I'm a better person than you because I can forgive you. No, it's, I am a sinner. I have been forgiven so much that I can forgive you what is relatively little. And the story of the unforgiven servant is indeed a, a marvelous illustration. You know the story, basically. There was a servant. He owed how much money? Well, the text, if you look at Matthew 18, it says that the slave owed 10,000 talents. Okay? The slave servant owed 10,000 talents. So how much is 10,000 talents? Um, well, one year, in all of Palestine, all the tax that was collected from Palestine, including Jerusalem, was big money, 
was 600 talents. So that's all of the money for one year of taxation is about 600 talents. This one individual owes 10,000 talents. Now, in other words, this is billions of dollars. Can anyone work off billions of dollars by their personal effort? No. So Jesus is using a, a very clear kind of crazy number that no one could ever repay back by their own efforts. And, of course, the story is he's forgiven that, which he could never, ever pay back. But he has someone that owes him money. And how much does the other person owe him? Well, just a little bit. Turns out it's about $10,000. So somebody owes him about $10,000. And he won't forgive the person that owes him $10,000. That's enough to hurt, right? You know, it's a couple couple months salary or something like that, $10,000, $20,000. It's enough to hurt. You don't want to just give it away. But come on. I mean, a person can pay that back. And the person who owes him the money, what does he say? Just give me time. I will pay it back. And he could have paid it back. And he says no. And he throws him into jail and has torturers come to basically exact this justice out of him. It's an amazing story. And you can see what, what happens as a result of this. Uh, he's owed 100 denarii, that's what it is, 100, 100 days wages. So think about three months salary or something like that. Well, what's, you know, what, what's, it's obviously pointing out how unjust it is for this person who's been forgiven so much, an incredible amount that he can never, ever pay back in a million lifetimes. But he will not forgive this relatively small but real other amount. It's just perfectly brilliant illustration of the point of forgiveness. And what is it? It's very simple. It's gospel grace. We have been forgiven from our sin, from all that we've done against the holy God, from all that we've done to others. We have been forgiven and given free grace. So you should be able to forgive the relatively lesser offenses against you. That message is clear. Do you understand that message? Is there anyone that does not comprehend that message? Because that is essentially the gospel. You have been forgiven, therefore you must forgive. That's why Jesus keeps saying, for if you do not forgive men their transgressions, neither will God forgive you. Because you don't know God if you do not have the capacity to forgive someone for a lesser offense. You don't get the gospel. You've missed the heart of the gospel. Now here, if you look at your outline, I'm going to finish with just what I consider the process of applying that central truth of how to forgive others. Now, let me say a word in defense of having steps. I've had someone tell me they were very critical of me for giving steps to forget, help people. On the other hand, I've had someone tell me, I, I get nothing out of people saying to me, just go to Christ, just you know, trust Him for your serious problems. People sometimes need specific guidance. That's what I hope this is. Also, I want to say that forgiveness in extreme cases like this Amish school shooting that I've referred to may take long time and counseling, lots of work to do this. So don't make it as though a person that, that's been grieved in some tremendous way needs to have an automatic response that's not righteousness to press people that way. But I do think these are all relevant even to extreme cases. And so here's the process that I would have you follow. And I told this process so many times over the years 
that I finally came up with a way to remember it. I would always talk through these principles. Every couple years I'd do a sermon series on it. And then I came up with an an acronym for it called PEOPLE. Okay, PEOPLE. So first, here's what you do. When you are struggling, well, somebody did something against me, I'm not sure what to do. Here's the first thing. Resolve to first, P, pursue peace through forgiveness. As we just said, you've been forgiven, know that. Now, that doesn't mean you know exactly what to do. There may be, well, do I take someone? Did they really do something wrong to me? There's lots of questions that can still result from that. But if you're struggling with a personal relationship, the first thing is to resolve to pursue peace through forgiveness. You might want to call that forgiveness, F-O-R-E, forgiveness. Forgiveness is you've resolved that you will forgive a person, but you want to do this in the proper way and context and for the proper reasons. Pursue peace, number one, P. E, again, we're spelling out the word people. E, examine yourself before accusing others. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7. Take the log out of your eye before you talk about the speck in somebody else's eye. Know where you stand. Examine yourself. That gives also the capacity for you to be more empathetic. You understand how it is to sin against other people. You've examined yourself, and you know that you have done this. So it is not as though you are on a different plane of existence than the person who sinned against you. You are also human. You are also a sinful human. You are also a human that needs forgiveness, that has been forgiven in Christ, and that needs to apply it. Examine yourself before others. O, offense defined with law and evidence. You may feel that Bill looked at you in an off way. What is the offense? How did this person sin against you? Someone may have disagreed with a political statement you made about our current president, let's just say. How is that an offense against you? How is that sin against you? Is the premise, anytime someone disagrees with me, they've sinned against me? That is not a biblical premise. Is the premise that some people can look at me in a certain way and unless they show a certain countenance, then they've sinned against Well, that's not a biblical premise. So you have to take the offense and objectively define it. What law did they break against you? And you can just think through the Ten Commandments here, right? Honor your father and mother. Did they dishonor you because you were in a position of authority? Six, did they kill you or murder you with anger and evil intentions? Did they try to literally kill you? I guess that would also fit. Seven, adultery. Did someone violate your, the sanctity of your marital relationship or in some kind of sexual way uh, offend you in, by, by uh, uh, an attempt at something that would violate uh, the, pro, the principle of adultery? Um, did someone steal from you? Steal intellectually, steal reputation, steal physical things from you? Did someone lie or slander you? That's the ninth commandment, bear false witness. Did someone covet, and that's a harder one to nail down, but did someone act so jealously or so much in envy that they were actually displaying covetousness? But what is the objective offense? And once you know that, now you're in a position to decide what to do. And there's two choices you have to make, and this takes us to the second P. So again, people pursue peace, examine yourself, 
Offense defined objectively. Now process. And here's where Matthew 18 comes in. There are two aspects of this process. One is that you can forgive without confrontation. Ephesians 5.32 says be forgiving. Uh, 1 Peter 4.8 says let love cover a multitude of sins. Okay, there are people you need to say, you know what, this person really hurt me, but I'm just going to forgive them without confronting them or anything else. I think they're in a place in their life where I don't need to confront them. I don't think that would help. I'm simply going to resolve to forgive them. Now, this is a, this is a move for mature Christians. Imagine if a child came to you after the service. I'm sure none of you children will do this. But let's say a child came up to Joe and punched him in the leg and ran away. Now, would Joe require that child to come before the elders and sit and you know, confess his sin and acknowledge and you know, all this sort of stuff? Or would you go, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on this kid and I'm going to forgive him for now. But like, out of the sense of, okay, I'm maturing, this person's going through. Well, think about spiritually. Think about a baby Christian or a person that you're not even sure where they are spiritually, and they do something, and they just, like you don't really think they can even understand what they did. So a confrontation with some people is very fruitless, and you have to make that decision. But what you can't do is not forgive them. So you have to forgive them. You could either do so without the process of confrontation or, Matthew 18, 15, and following, we may forgive through confrontation. If you do determine to forgive without confrontation, then freely, decisionally forgive them and move on and let it go. That's the idea. And then exercise a renewed mind. That's the last um, one, jumping ahead. But if you do need to do the confrontation, number five, listen in the confrontation. Listen. Try to understand what was going on. Make sure at that confrontation, you're listening to find out, did this person actually sin against you? Well, when you did this, this is how it made me feel. I did this and this and this. And the person says, oh, well, my mother died that day, and that's why I looked at you that way, because I was really thinking about my mother and her death. Oh, I'm so sorry. This person didn't sin against you, but you needed to verify what was going on Again, Jesus says, let, the, let every fact be established, right? Every fact be established. And so, um, going through the steps here. Pursue peace. Examine yourself before accusing others. Offense defined objectively. Process of confrontation, that is to forgive without confrontation or to forgive through confrontation, to listen in the confrontation, and then finally to exercise a renewed mind. Because if you do not actively determine you are going to continue to walk in that forgiveness with others, it will come back and start to eat at you. And that's exercise a renewed mind. Philippians 4 tells us how to do that. Rejoice in the Lord. Think on what is good, true, and beautiful. Uh, Romans 12 does this. Here, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, Psalm 1, and many Psalms say, meditate on the law of God. In other words, don't let your thoughts go dark toward this person that you've just forgiven. Rather, renew your mind. So people, pursue peace, examine yourself, offense defined, process of confrontation, listen in confrontation, 
and then exercise a renewed mind. Now let me conclude with just a word about the story that I began with, with regard to this family, these families that were harmed in Lancaster County. One of the interesting outcomes of that is the mother of this murderous person, her name is Terry Roberts. You can imagine a mother of a person who becomes basically a mass killer of children. What would you, how would you act? I mean, it'd just be what a crushing status to be in, like to be known as the mother of this infamous, awful person. How would you deal with this? And it's clear from her interaction, she just wanted to be, she just felt the shame of all this. But these Amish neighbors that live next to her all came to her house and conveyed to her forgiveness and continued to do so. At her son's funeral, there were far more Amish at the funeral than there were his relatives and friends. The the Amish came to his funeral in order to basically say and convey forgiveness. And they've continued to do so. One of the sad things is that there's a, one of the young girls, she's now, her name was, her name was Rosanna. She was one of the most injured survivors and she sustained injuries to her head from a gunshot. She's now 15. She's in a wheelchair and she's still fed through a feeding tube. So this has ongoing, you know, life. And now every week, Terry Roberts goes over, takes her, bathes her, dries her hair, brushes her hair, reads to her. And that has brought resolution to her. So you can see a picture. You can actually look up this online. You see a picture in her room, the mother's room. There's a doorway, and over the doorway is a big sign, and it says, forgiven, forgiven, big sign, just a reminder right there when you walk into her house. So we should all have those signs all over the place, all over our lives. We should have that placard, forgiven, I'm forgiven. And maybe a smaller sign underneath that would be forgiving. I'm forgiven, and I'm forgiving. That's what it means to be in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have paid for our sins so that we may forgive others. Help us practice this in all kinds of relationships. Give us a heart to be renewed in our relationships. Open the doors for reconciliation among friends and relatives and workers. Help us have the wisdom to know when to confront and when not to. Help us be strong in forgiveness, to, as it were, have written all over our lives, forgiven and also Therefore, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And now we pray in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. certainly my privilege to be with you, as already mentioned, coming from Lancaster County All Saints Church. Many years ago, we uh, were in contact with the folks here and 
had a hand in helping the church get started, and so we're grateful for that. I'm glad to be back to see friends and to meet new friends and family. And of course, I've known Steve. I remember the first time Steve came to our presbytery meeting in Lancaster County. I remember uh, something of the examination on the floor there of, of the church as they were coming in, and Steve as minister. I believe that uh, that was in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. And Steve has been to my home before. He's preached in my pulpit as well as we've served in the same office as presiding minister now. So it's a wonderful privilege to be here. What I would like to do is speak to Steve very directly, and you guys can listen in, okay? That's how we're going to do this particular sermon on the context of installation for ministry. So with that in mind, let me say a few words. A few years ago, a poll was done for, uh, by, by Fuller Institute of Church Growth, and it, it was considering the, consider the sobering results of the personal and professional lives of clergy. And this is what they deduced after a survey. They said, 90% of pastors work more than 46 hours a week. 80% believe that pastoral ministry effect, affected their families negatively. 33% said that being in ministry was an outright hazard to their family. 75% reported a significant stress-related crisis at least once in their ministry. 50% felt unable to meet the needs of the job. 90% felt that they were inadequately trained to cope with ministry demands. 70% say they have a lower esteem now than when they started out. 40% reported a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 37% confessed having been involved in an inappropriate sexual relationship or behavior in the church. And 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. Now these are dated, um, dated survey results, but I think they are probably quite relevant to today's Minister, And it is in that context, it is in that as churches in America, as pastors minister, that's the setting, that's the context of most churches where those sorts of things are real. I preached this morning, if you weren't here, on relational conflicts because it's been my experience in the church that that's the message that we need. We need to know how to pursue peace with one another, to grant forgiveness and to heal relationships. That is a central aspect of ministry. And I say to Steve, Steve, I hope that is a central aspect of what you will be doing in the ministry here, to promote relational healing because we're called to be those that are peacemakers. I want to address, just in these few minutes, uh, from 1 Timothy 15, the conduct of a, of a minister in the house of God under several basic headings, first of all, private ministry, public ministry, and then professional ministry. And as you think about the conduct here, the term that Paul uses here is he says how, must, how to conduct oneself in the household of God. The Greek word is anastrepho. It means just really conduct, the same idea that we would have. How does one dispose of his ministry? How does one dispose of his activity? And of course, it well describes how one does so in terms of official duties. And so in our day, we await almost every day, if not every day, we hear of the misconduct 
of leaders, politicians, and even clergymen, of course. And we know of many scandals in relation to that. That can happen. And that can happen. It's one thing for us in our small communion of churches to think, well, we're better than that. Those statistics do not apply to us. And yet, not long ago, one of our ministers fell through an inappropriate relationship with a person he was counseling and, and, and is now removed from the ministry. And thank, thank the Lord they are removed from the ministry. They didn't get to stay in the ministry. But still, we are not immune because we have a certain creed or profession or teach the Bible or have this kind of worship. None of that keeps us from falling and having failure in this way. How does one conduct themselves in the household of God? And this, by the way, is a, an astounding picture here. Paul is writing, of course, to Timothy saying, if I'm not able to come to you, I want to make sure you know these things. And as he writes, he lays out a number of, of things. I will expand this sort of conduct to all that I think the Bible uh, teaches in summary fashion. But here he, he describes the house of God in an interesting way. The word house, of course, is the term oikos. We use it the same way in, in English. It means family, it means dwelling, it means a structure, sometimes it means dynasty. That's the way the word is used there as well. But here Paul viewed the church as God's family, probably the entire Ephesian church. And here, house of God is the community, but just notice it's striking that these New Testament congregations, and here Paul is probably talking about Ephesus, but all those churches we read about through the Bible in the book of Acts, he's comparing those churches, those small groups of people, not probably not unlike a group here. Imagine the church of Philippi at some point probably looked a lot like you guys, just a small group of people. But he says, he uses language, look, pillar and foundation of the truth. This is language drawn from temple imagery. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was the largest man-made structure in the world at that time. It was like a gleaming white mountain as you approached Jerusalem. And it did indeed have pillars and gold all over it. Imagine comparing the pillar and foundation of the truth, that image with a group of people meeting probably in a house, maybe in a courtyard, in one of those cities surrounding the Mediterranean Ocean. Like that's the imagery he uses. He says, we are in the household of God. It takes some imagination for us to see this. And Steve, you have to know that when you look at the people in the pew, when you consider what the church is, the congregation, you must see in your mind the pillar and foundation of the truth, the congregation of the Lord, the people of God are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Remember C.S. Lewis in that great screw tape letters begins as he describes the church in one spot. He says, when you tempt someone, if you know the plot of screw tape, it's a, it's a devil tempting a new Christian. He says, make sure that you don't, uh, you know, make sure that he focuses on the outward appearance of people when they come to church. Because what he can't see is what we can see, that is the demonic realm can see the church stretched out through all eternity, terrible as an army with banners. The pillar and foundation of the truth. That's the reality of the church. We can only see a little tip of the iceberg. Sometimes what we do see annoys us. But we need to see beyond the people in the view, beyond the clothes that they wear, beyond their eyelids getting heavy 
and see them as what God says about the church, the, the untold work of the Holy Spirit in his redemptive plan to bring about uh, an elect people, this, again, house of God, here the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so with that in mind of what we are doing in terms of ministry, it is through dependence on the Holy Spirit, it is through knowing Christ, it is through using the spiritual gifts God has given that you may appropriately minister and defy these statistics that I just read a few moments ago. And so here it is. And the first aspect, I have it in this order for this presentation, is what I would call professional ministry, or if you will, administrative ministry, or leadership in that sense. Devote yourself, Steve, as a steward and household manager. That's the word in Titus 1.7. An overseer, an oikonomos, oikonomos, same idea of oikos, it's a manager of a house. A steward must be above reproach, Titus 1.7. Titus or Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5 says, a man that does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage the household of God? So there is a a responsibility for what I'm calling here professional ministry. It's be diligent to lead in administration in the church. I've seen two pastors fail, not because of an immoral relationship, but because they simply could not be organized enough to lead the people of God well. And this is a duty, to be a steward of the household of God. That's what Titus says. Be diligent to do this. Make this a significant part of your work. Be diligent to work toward good organization. As Benjamin Franklin said, for every minute spent organizing, an hour is earned. Be diligent to keep your word in terms of your schedule. Don't miss appointments so far as it depends on you. Psalm 15, 4 says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This is a righteous man. Sometimes it's inconvenient to keep your word, but do so. Be diligent in avoiding procrastination. Be careful to be on the ball. As David Allen, an organizational specialist, says in his book, Getting Things Done, much of the stress that people feel doesn't come from having too much to do. It comes from not finishing what we start. Be diligent to finish what you start, to keep deadlines. Be diligent to think ahead in the calendar and consult other leaders on upcoming events. Proverbs 15:22 says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. This is indeed the model of our polity, of our church leadership, is to have multiple elders serve together, that consultation Don't forget to consult deacons. Our model is a consistory uh, approach. Deacons and elders together for planning ministry events in our church. I commend it highly. Be diligent in being prompt to set an example of timeliness. Dante said, and he who knows most grieves most for wasted time. So just a few bullet point exhortations on professional ministry. There are many other things to say. But you have a responsibility to be a steward in the household of God. Secondly, private ministry. 1 Timothy 4.7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. A minister may be tempted in a relationship to fall. 
And even more, one may fail in not calling a person to account, in letting the fear of man get the best of it. I have really no concern about Steve and having inappropriate relationships, but it's a concern of my own heart for my own self that it's very easy not to be as bold as we need to be in preaching the gospel and in speaking to people about their sins and in directly confronting people. The fear of man brings a snare. And I exhort you, do not let the fear of man control you. Rather, speak the truth in love and lead the people of God. And more common than even moral failings are relational failings, perhaps with members of the congregation, with leaders, with other leaders, with your family, perhaps even with your wife. Be diligent to be the kind of person in your private life who seeks peace, who practices forgiveness, who seeks forgiveness, who practices the proper confrontation when need be, so that none of those relationships hinder your ministry. One may fail by not getting nourishment from God's word, from dependence on the Holy Spirit, but rather just studying for what he will say to others. I know this very well. This is a sin of ministers. Not studying to know God better, not studying to see our Savior there, but studying simply to be able to have a clever word, a clever message. Everyone that's a teacher that deals in knowledge is tempted to pride and those kinds of things. And this is an, uh, a reason for the exhortation to say, grow in the Lord, spend time with God, pray, nourish your own soul as you nourish other souls. A minister, says B.B. Warfield, must be learned on pain of being utterly incompetent for his work and basically saying if you don't study, you will be incompetent. You can't do the ministry without study. But before and above being learned as a minister, a minister must be godly. Nothing could be more fatal, however, than to set these two things over against one another. Recruiting officers do not dispute whether it is better for soldiers to have a right leg or a left leg. Soldiers have both legs. And so you can't set the study over against being godly. Those things must be harmonized and woven into a beautiful incarnate person in the minister. And I exhort you to do so. Thirdly and finally, the public ministry. Acts 20, 26, when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders who he had spent some time with and he knew he would not see them again and they were weeping as he was leaving. He said, I am free from the blood of all men because I've visited you from house to house, taught you the word, and I've declared to you what he calls the whole counsel of God's word. I take that to be the whole, to use this language, system of doctrine in the Bible. I take it to be all the representative truth of the Bible, and especially the heart of the gospel, but all the richness of Scripture in summary fashion, the whole counsel of God's word, that is the goal that we must have. To preach and teach, to be ready to preach in season and out of season, says 2 Timothy 4.1. And even in your preaching, 
to preach in such a way as to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to preach yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Ministers here, and there's several, need to be stirred up that if they don't preach the gospel, if they don't reflect upon, did I present Jesus Christ as the Savior, the person to be believed upon for salvation, it it should be a pain to us. Uh, This is part of preaching the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says, we do not preach ourselves. So don't preach yourself, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Don't preach a different gospel. Galatians 1.8 says, If we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, let him be accursed. Rather, don't preach yourself, don't preach a different gospel, but preach the gospel from the whole counsel of God, from the whole counsel of God's word. And so, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be in season, ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And even as you do these things, remember your public ministry is characterized by your leadership in worship as well. Your liturgical oversight. See that in your tenure as a steward of the liturgy, that people are exposed to a wide range of scripture in reading, in teaching, in preaching, that they grow deeper in singing the Psalms and knowing the Psalms of Zion, knowing the hymns that God has given us in the Word, that they know the steps of the great dance better as they approach God and make sure that, as C.J. Bowen once taught us, and I'm sure you were there, to make sure that the liturgy works. Do you remember this talk? That is, the liturgy works, which is to say, if we confess our sins before God, are we learning to be a forgiving and confessing people? If we are welcome to the table of the Lord in the liturgy, are we ourselves being hospitable to others and inviting others to our table? If we are being washed with the water of the word in the liturgy, are we ourselves personally committed to the word of God? And do we use it? If we are commissioned to go forth and serve God, are we actually going forth to serve God? Is the liturgy that you're overseeing and leading working in the congregation? Make sure that you do this. And I say in closing from a statement of John Owen, which ties these things together, which I believe um, Make for pastoral leadership, that is your professional ministry, your private ministry, with your own study with the people of God and counseling and smaller opportunities, and your public ministry, uh, especially on the Lord's Day. John Owen said, a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, and I hope you do. The mouths of the public may be filled, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty That he is, and no more. So however much success one sees in the public ministry, what you are on your knees before God, that you are, and no more. And that truth does not only apply to ministers, does it? It is not how you appear. 
It is not the money you make. It is not your position. What you are is what you are before God, that and no other. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.